0: Welcome to a new episode of Open Door Podcast. We're now in Series 2, Episode 3, which uh, is getting a bit surreal. I'm joined here by my co-host, colleague and friend, Mr. Chris Galley. How you doing, Chris? I'm
1: very well, Lee. How's it going? <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I'm going to say not too bad, but um, I am feeling exhausted now. We've got, yeah. what, what is it, one more day? One
1: more day before no, our man. half-term yeah. break. Yeah, it's been quite a week. We've had standardised testing going on here in the school with the other grades, so Yeah, that's intense for everyone involved. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was going to say, I think the teachers involved are looking a little bit more stressed than the students.
1: <laughs> Sometimes that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: because we care. It's a good exactly. thing. It's a positive thing. And then there's a bit of a reward for the kids exactly, this evening. Yeah,
1: disco, boogie on down. Yeah, oh, Fan, yeah. And good. Course of course a week off. Yeah. It was a nice reward.
0: Oh, that is a huge reward.
1: (laughs) You've been uh, busy yourself, no? You're on a a PD course over the weekend?
0: Yeah. I got to go to an innovative global education course. Um, It was about agency, innovation, and inquiry. And I have to say, I'm not always massively inspired at some of these courses, but Mm. it was fantastic. It was one that I would absolutely recommend. Amazing. yeah, great time spent there. Really good group of people as well, which always makes the Definitely place. those connections.
1: And... Yeah. yeah. So. Funny enough, I was stood outside your door the other day. You had your door open. Oh. Um, I was eavesdropping on your conversation with the children. You were talking about a week of action.
0: Mm. I imagine so. <laughs> yeah.
1: So this has led to some action in the classroom?
0: Yeah, we have actually. Sorry, yes. Um, at the moment, I'm just looking up at my board, which is... Kind of inspired by Guy Claxton, it's a bit of split-screen learning. So we're trying to jump back and forth between our learning, and then sitting back and saying, well, what is it that we're actually learning about, and what are we learning to do? What are some of the skills involved there? And then trying to tie it into what are we trying to be? So for us in IB, we're talking about the learner profiles a lot, but also saying, you know, are we trying to be explorers, or are we trying to be writers, or? And trying to think, even sort of connecting to the jobs, and that has been really eye-opening to see what the students are aware of, mm. and uh, which bits we need to make a little bit more explicit.
1: That's wonderful. I love that format. be quite nice to share that
0: out. Yeah, might start passing it around. Yeah, yeah just sat next to the wonder wall as well. It's always good. Wonderful.
1: <laughs> Such a nice display here in your classroom.
0: Thank you very much. <laughs>
1: Thank you. So Lee a special guest for today's
0: show. Doing Who thing. are we going to be joined by? Um, this one, I'm, I say I'm excited every week. I am excited then. <laughs> um, A really good friend of mine um, and yours, of Indeed. course, as well. He was the interim principal at, um, at our school in Kensington when I was teaching there. Um, he's taught various international schools across from Canada, Turkey, Prague. Um, he's now teaching in Spain mm. at Thames Madrid, he's the deputy principal there. Thames is an English Montessori school and it ranges from three all the way up to 18, Mm. which is quite special. Um, And actually he wrote his dissertation on tonight's topic, which Mm. is resilience. So we will be meeting up with Mr. John Coward very, very soon.
1: Yeah, well, let's get into the conversation.
0: Welcome to a new episode of Open Door. I'm sat here with Mr. Chris Galley. How are you doing, Chris? Very well, Lee. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. I'm sat here and sorry, I'm beaming ear to ear as I've got the video on for the first time. I can see Chris and I'm sat there with our guest for this evening. Uh, Chris, maybe you'd like to
1: introduce our guest tonight. Sure. So uh, we are joined by our former colleague and very good friend, Mr. John Coward. John, welcome to the show.
2: Hello. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. Absolute pleasure to be here. I've been listening to your previous episodes, the other people you've been interviewing, and just been enthralled by it. So when you did ask me to come on the show, I just grabbed the opportunity. So thank you. It's great to be here.
1: Noel, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for being here. I guess um, we should say buenas noches, as you are joining us from oh, yeah.
2: Spain. <laughs> here, here in Madrid, so I think it was 13 degrees today and bright, bright sunshine. A little bit of a chill in the in the morning, so I'm, where I'm at in Madrid is kind of near the mountains, so it's got quite a nice mountain crisp start cycle ride right in the morning, but yeah, by midday, 12 degrees and nice and bright and sunny.
0: Hmm, well, not jealous at all.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: in cold, wet London. <laughs> um, so, as Chris mentioned, you've recently just started a new job in Spain. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your role and a little bit about the school that you're at?
2: Yeah. So, um, I left London about start of August, and set my family here in Madrid, and started the job just in September. Um, super big change for me, but it's been absolutely exhilarating and exciting. So, I've gone from an IB school in central London which is just a phenomenal school that you both are in, um, to this school, which is equally amazing. So it's a Montessori school. And when you hear the word Montessori, often you've got images of wooden toys that students mm. play with and often ages three to six. But the school that I'm in is um, in Madrid. It's a Montessori school. that has been around for about 40 years. And it's Montessori for ages three to 18. Mm. So the role that I've got is deputy And what that means is it's a role that I kind of oversee teaching and learning from ages three all the way to 18, which has just brought brought about so many new experiences for me, not only because it's national curriculum and the Spanish curriculum combined, so it's no longer the IB, the International Baccalaureate, it's um, working across the age groups from three to 18, so only, I think, two weeks ago, I was observing and then i was subbing in a class which was a year 12 maths class as a span class so something i didn't think i'd see myself in that position last year or many many years ago having taught at um, my previous school for so many years so just there's so much of the life here but so much of the school that's just so different but also um yeah just really exciting really really exciting
1: amazing amazing so yeah. tell us a bit about how does that work a montessori system going all the way up to 18 you said um and there's no wooden blocks in the the upper years
2: well yeah well that's often when people google it they see that (laughs) resourcing is significant resourcing is really really significant particularly Hmm. for the the younger years so the way that our school is structured is we have kind of three buildings very close together um and funny enough the question you just asked me of i actually had somebody asking me that same question yesterday one of our We have another school in Valencia and they've got student teachers and they came over to Madrid to have a look around our school because of that question. I'll tell you actually what they said. They said that they they heard a lot of the language about how the students learn, which kind of filtered not only from our younger years. I keep saying younger years. But if you look at our school, our younger years is actually called a house. It's called Discovery House. So Mm -hmm. lots of the Montessori schools around the world, they call either homes or houses Um, and the language the students use. And the independence of learning kind of filters as it goes up throughout the whole school. There does become challenges when you introduce IGCSEs and Bacheloretto when they get to years 12 plus. Um, But the the philosophies that the school holds within the Montessori stays there. But we need to keep falling back on, on Montessori philosophy, Montessori kind of values, which is that independent learner. But also within the materials they use, which again is another fascinating world within Montessori, there's lots of the materials that, that teachers who teach Montessori say you don't, uh, almost you don't interact with students, you allow them to find that the fault within the tools they're using. It's, it's, it's really fascinating to go into. And the best thing to do is actually not hear someone like me explain it, but to, to actually go into a class, it really is. Really Ooh. worth investigating and even taking from, from whatever educational system you're in.
0: Sounds like there are really some crossovers with IB. I know a lot of your experience was there, but... Um and maybe some of those differences. Hopefully we can unpick those a little bit as we go on.
2: Yeah, the, and, and then they've got another layer. So you've got your Montessori and then they've got the national curriculum and then also mm-hmm. the Spanish curriculum on top of that. So it does bring about some, almost some slightly different focuses that they've got in different areas, but it's it's bringing that together with a, a teacher who knows that from each of these, you start at where the child is at and then you move them forward. And it's the mm-hmm. kind of language you use around that. And I don't mean Spanish or English, I mean, the educational language you use around that and then also the resources you use behind that. But yeah, no. it's, it's, it's interesting. It's really interesting, particularly with the, the staff that we have who are excellent staff at the school, really, really good. But they even themselves have different kind of training and background through both Montessori, Spanish and also international curriculum. So yeah, mm. It's interesting.
0: And the, uh, the students themselves, are they mainly from a Spanish background or is it a bit similar to previous schools of students from all over the place?
2: Uh, that's a really good question. The, that's the one thing that I found the biggest difference for me. So coming from the school that you're at, where you've got something like 60 nationalities, something like that, 60 mm-hmm. different, and you walk into a class, let's say 20 students, you've got 15 different nationalities, different nationalities. This is quite different. So here you've got, we have got different nationalities, but not many. So the main cohort are Spanish and Spanish families. When you get talking to them, often the, one of the parents is from outside Spain. Um, but a large proportion of them are from from Spain. And do you know what? A large proportion of them, and this is really significant, a large proportion of them, particularly the older students, you get to years, 10, 11, 12, have been there since they were three. Oh, wow. So it wow. really is their home. So the, yeah. so the, in terms of the changeover or the churn each year, it's really quite low, and that's exciting. Ooh. That's really, really exciting when you've got those students that when they walk into school, do you know what? They've been there for years. Absolutely. Mm. yes. So as much as I, I um, was learning from the people who were touring me on the first day and learning from kind of the, the, the other professionals around me, I learned so much. Mm-hmm. I'm still learning so much from just talking to these students because they mm. know it. There's been some changes in the last 10 years in the school and they've just kind of lived and breathed it and kept going with it. So, so mm-hmm. that speaks That speaks absolute volumes, even to the degree that you've got these year 12 students who are wearing uniform, you can see it has been passed down to them, but they feel it really pride, really proud to wear it.
1: So quite, <laughs> yeah.
2: quite like that aspect as well, where the yeah. Quite like that, it's quite nice. I
1: nice guess seat. it goes back to what you mentioned before about having these houses within the school. You know, the school becomes their home in this way. And oh, um, just,
2: significantly so, significantly. When it's something that I'm, um, when I started the school, one area that they were looking for me to lead and that I've enjoyed thoroughly, because it overlaps what I have previously worked with, is the voice of the student. So voice of the student and voice of the learner. So it's, it's enabling even further student voice. And that's come immensely strongly from the students here in terms of, do you feel safe at the school? Yes. Who would you go to? Oh, my friends. Hands down, hands down I would go to my friends because i trust them and they would listen. And they'd actually be almost the upstanders for me. And that's really powerful. You'd, you'd almost expect that from most schools, but I found it even more powerful here, really powerful there. They've got a close, a close network, not only because of the fact they've been in school a long time, but it's also because... I believe it's because there, are, there is an international network but there, a lot of them have a lot of similarities by being, by being Spanish so I think, I think that's significant
1: Fascinating, well I think uh, Lee, we've got an excuse for a bit of a, a road trip, an open door road trip it yeah. <laughs> to Madrid
2: It's only two hours away, not long, and especially if you've got that, that strong wind you've got at the moment, I'm sure it'll be
1: quicker
2: <laughs> yeah. You'll be, be able to whiz over One and a
1: half, Yeah <laughs> And so, John, um, backing up a bit um, and looking sort of prior in your career, what has been your journey in education? I believe you've taught in lots of different countries. Can you tell us a bit about that?
2: Yeah. So, um, so I'm from Oxford originally in England. After going to Reading University and then um, I taught in the north of England, which is Lincolnshire. People from England don't like me saying that they said it's not the north of England at all. I taught in Lincolnshire, um, in a Church of England school for about three years. Absolutely adored it. I loved it. Then I had the opportunity to, to go to Canada. My mum's Canadian, and I had the opportunity to go for a short time to Vancouver. Um, I went to Vancouver, and I was just blown away. I was blown away by going and walking into a class so I had... I remember at the time, my first class I went into was a... I think it was a 10, 11-year-old, and I was teaching an English class. Um, then when I walked in, when I was teaching this English English class, my plans are kind of I had to really put to one side because when I started talking about the richness of vocabulary, I still remember now there was a, a Korean boy who was explaining to me about the words that I was teaching the class, but in Korean. And that just <laughs> fascinated me. It really, really did about the connections you can make from simple sentences like building in the richness of international children. It was just mind boggling. <laughs> However, at the same time, I was downtown um, Vancouver, and there's, from my experience, in terms of to live, um, in fact, in, in fact, if I could, I'd probably retire there. It's a beautiful, beautiful place to be. Um, it's got the busyness, but it's also got the, just the, the almost the fresh air that I just, I just I can still remember it now. So then from there, um, I was kind of hooked. So that wasn't IB, but then I, I thought, Do you know what, I'll, I'll have a year abroad and then come back home. Which is something since being on the international market, I've heard a lot of people say and it kind of doesn't always work out that way. So from there, I went to the British International School of Prague. And Prague was just, that's probably one two of my best years internationally teaching. So I taught a variety of classes within, i taught two classes within those two years and just loved it. Loved it for the school, loved it for their uh, new friends that I met, but also loved it for the location. They, they talk about it being the heart of, of Europe. And it really is. It really, really is. Um, and then to actually be there, not just as a visitor, but to be there and to live in the centre of the city. That's a really first experience I'd had living a long term um, in a place and there's, there's, there's nothing better for you, absolutely nothing better for you. So then from there, um, the next journey took me to so two more places before here in Madrid. From there, I wanted more really, and I wanted just kind of a different experience of a different culture. Um, and that took me to Turkey. But it didn't take me to Istanbul, where a variety or the majority of the international schools are. It took me to Ankara. So it took me to a university, but to a prep school in university. And I taught ICT, which was part of my kind of my education in Reading University was linked to technology and IT. So I taught IT there, but again, to a variety of ages from primary, but also to middle school. That, being linked with a university, was just, again, a, a brilliant experience. This was a school that was a candidate school for IB, but they had the Turkish curriculum. The first couple of days I was there, I was kind of mind, it was mind-boggling. The junior school teachers, in the morning, the children would come into their class and they have one classroom. They'd have their English teacher in the morning. And then, literally, after lunch, after a nice pea day, having for lunch, similar to a pizza, they'd then come back to the class and they'd have their Turkish teacher. So they had the, the kind of that, again, it was a large cohort of, of um, Turkish students, but they had the different kind of uh, educational practices happening there. So that was brilliant. And then what happened next? Then from there, I came back to London. Or I came back to England and I came back to London. I had a look at what's the best school uh, in the UK. And of course, it's South Bank. So I came to South Bank <laughs> I landed there. And then 16 years later, I've moved from there and I've moved here to Madrid a couple of months ago. So, yeah, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the whole, the whole experience. And I'm sure when you get talking to anyone who's a teacher, who's sampled or who is now living within an international school, I'm sure they'll have very similar stories about the positive things that, that you can take away from such an experience, not just teaching international children, but by being completely immersed within a culture that just, just surprises you.
0: Absolutely. That is some career. That is a, a very interesting journey. Um, can I ask you, what sort of started it off? What was the the spark or the inspiration that pushed you down the teaching route?
2: Pushed me down the teaching route? Um, so I, it was quite early doors really. When I was in Oxford, we did a work placement and I had a work placement in an architect's in the centre of Oxford, which was just amazing. Um, I went down the centre of Oxford, and I did it for, I think, two weeks. Absolutely loved it, loved it, loved it. But then on the last day, I thought, I don't want to be an architect. For me, it was just too much sitting in one room. So in that case, um, after that, I took it upon myself to go back to a primary school near me, just to drop in, and I wanted to do sports. So I went to the primary school, and this was just really part of my kind of A level, really. And just seeing the variety of subjects this teacher, she was in the local primary school, and I just remember her... Staying with her for, I think it was three, four days, but for the full three, four days and seeing the variety of stuff that she was teaching from religious studies to then moving on to their maths, to then going on to what they had the topic work, which I'm sure was Egyptians, because every primary school does Egyptians. And then she went on later <laughs> to prepare her assembly, which then involved parents coming in. So just that whole rounded experience was just and then when she when she was able to talk to me about knowing her students so well, I just, I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. So then what I did next, that hooked me. And then I did something, which I'm not sure if it's, if it's there anymore. I did a, a degree in education for four years. Because I know the degrees, I sense that for me, they're, they're getting shorter and shorter. But mm. I did mine for four years, which is a BA ed um, in education. And it was in technology. So then I was kind of oh, all okay. the way through. I know many teachers no. that I've interviewed or many teachers I've met have done the whole variety of routes coming into education a lot of them through the um, PGCE. And something that I've learned or something I've, I've I've grown to learn over time is you've got people like me that have since the age of dot, I've just loved teaching and want to stay into it. Then you've got other professionals that have come in who've done the, the, um, the PGCEs and they've come in later or they've come from industry. Having a mix is vital, is absolutely mm. vital. So having those people who've come from industry, those architects, those engineers that have then gone into teaching. They, they really bring something, they really bring something, along with the other people who have kind of had it as part of their kind of part of their whole career. It's really, it's really, really, yeah, it's really nice to have that balance.
1: Amazing. It's such a fascinating journey yeah. and, you know, you clearly wear so many hats in your job. Um, as deputy head, I know you've had a lot of experience with safeguarding. Um, are you still involved in IT in Madrid? Are you still teaching IT?
2: Yeah, good question. When I, when I got the job, um, so when I was offered the job, it was, it was a big job that was explained to me. And then what I'd said to them straight away was saying, actually, I would quite like to, I really would like to keep teaching. So I've also previously been an interim um, principal back at South Bank. And when I was a principal at South Bank, I then asked, can I still keep teaching? That was one of the hardest years of my life ever. And actually going back, I probably shouldn't have been teaching for that day <laughs> cause I was a teacher during that time. But yeah, that's something that I did ask here. I said, could I, could I teach? Also, because it's the easiest way to get to know the kids. And it's the simplest way that when there are problems that come up, I'm able to not just think, oh, who is that child or that group of children you're talking about? I'm able to almost, I'm able to not necessarily know them in and out, but be aware of kind of the students, I don't know, students' perspectives. So it's, it's something for me that was um, kind of vital. It also that when I'm dealing with significant things at a whole school level, being put into a class of, so this year I'm teaching year three, uh, year five and year six, um, a variety of things. And to be able to, to stop whatever you're doing and go into a class, you, you can't be nothing more but engaged with them. So it, it's, it's quite a nice grounder, it really is. And then I've actually done this year um, three separate things that I'm trialling with my students that I know we're going to roll out for the whole school. Um, And it's just an easy way to do it rather than talk about it or rather than say to my new school saying, do you know what, my last school that worked really, really well because they don't like really hearing that. So the best thing to do is actually do it with the kids and show them, right, have a look at what your kids have done with this. And this is how they can progress with their learning using this tool. So one tool, for example, is this Seesaw. It's a tool that I'm sure many people listening to this, particularly junior school um, teachers, they'll know about it. because It's just so, so popular as an online portfolio. Something that we're looking to get into for celebrating students' learning. However, the way to sell it to them is by through my teaching of IT, is showing how the kids respond to it. So I've approached it a slightly different way to what we did in Southbank. In Southbank, we taught the teachers, we gave the teachers devices, they had a little play, 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 and then they taught the kids. Brilliant, it worked. Here, we're not doing that, or I'm not doing that, here, I've got the device, I'm teaching the kids how to do it, I'm showing the kids a whole variety of ways that they can express and reflect themselves using the tool, and then very soon I'm going to show the teachers, have a look at what your kids can do with it, now what would you like to do with it, so mm. let's see how uh-huh. that works. So
0: that's a great Literally, strategy. Yeah. <laughs> Literally presenting them with a portfolio of portfolios. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> exactly.
1: Very meta of you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, well, I think it's about time that we got into the topic of our show and the reason why we wanted to have you on um, for a bit of a discussion. Um, And so we know that you are um, suddenly versed in the language of resilience, having studied it for your um, dissertation as part of your master's. And so um, we thought it'd be a, a really good excuse to get you on and to have a bit of a chat about resilience, what it is in the classroom, why it's important and how um, teachers can help instill that um, skill and value um, within their students. So I guess to start off, can you tell us a bit about your research, what you did in your master's dissertation related to resilience?
2: Yeah so it was um, about three or four years ago now, Um, it was a word that was relatively new across the the field of education back then Um, but nowadays it's used an immense amount. Um, I had a look at my master's. It was a master's in educational leadership, and I was reflecting on the last dissertation to do and what the students at the school needed. So I wanted to focus really on, on the school that I was at and also the schools that I'd also been to and thinking about what they needed to develop. And I thought about some things that schools aren't necessarily assessing. assessing. And also a particular passion of mine is oral care, but also character development. Um, then there was a couple of things that kind of struck me. When I was having a look around the school and seeing the school children being dismissed during the end of the day, I saw there was a lot of bag dropping. Whereby there were some students who, when they were getting picked up at the end of the day, even older students, they'd simply drop a bag and the adults would pick it up for them. And I thought, that's not that doesn't feel right. That really, really doesn't feel right. And there was something else that struck me. So as part of my um, kind of oversight with safeguarding, which, is, which I just adored, part of that was also looking at the um, kind of the first aid within the school, so seeing about the, the reports of any injuries and I noticed there were some students who were, who were coming to get their good old um, ice pack because those are fantastic in a school. The number one priority <laughs> for any school is an ice pack. Um, and I saw there were was, was some students who were just almost repeat ice packers. So I wanted, <laughs> I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to know why that was. So I, kind of, I went to them and I interviewed them and I actually found that it wasn't the fact that they were getting bruised or injured. It's just that their threshold, so when they would then seek for help, was really low, like excruciatingly low, even for, the, even for the older students within the school. And there were particular types of characters. And when I spoke then, addressed, after I spoke to the students and listened to them, I then approached a staff member about it. And they would then say to me, oh, yeah, little Jimmy, I know that. I know he does that. He always either comes to me or he falls out with his friends. And I thought, Do you know what, there's something more there and there's something more there for the school. Hence the look into resilience. It didn't just then click into the word resilience. I then turned to somebody who's phenomenal. So Siobhan. So Siobhan McGrath, who was then principal, but is now executive um, principal of South Bank, is, I don't know, can you call her a guru? I don't know. She's absolutely phenomenal. She's brilliant. And she has an oversight within education that um, it really is pretty inspiring. So I worked with her as deputy and then interim principal for many years when i then had a dialogue with her about kind of what was needed in the school this 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 came up to so the res- the idea of resilience came up but also thinking about how that could be developed and we didn't really have an answer and even with the brief time that we were looking at researching it there wasn't too much out there so i thought that's a good problem for, for us to look into so then i started looking into it for my um, dissertation but i got a significant surprise so when I started with my dissertation, I thought, right, I'll do my dissertation 18 months and I'll have a look into how I can build up the students' resilience. Fine. So I'll focus only on students. I'll create focus groups and so on and so forth. But I rapidly changed my, um, my inquiry into that quite quickly, where I found from interviewing a whole variety of people, including teachers and um, students, but then parents, I found one key was not necessarily the teacher's knowledge, or the, the, the ability for students to be able to develop it with their peers, it was actually parents. I found that the cohort of parents within our, and within our school, there was potential there for them to, to develop their, their, their own children's resilience tenfold, absolutely tenfold, whereas I thought no matter how many initiatives that I put in place within the school, they're always at 3.30, 4.30, dropping that bag, getting in their car, and letting the parents do this stuff for them in some respects. So I thought there's even more there for knowing that for parents, <clears throat> for education for parents, to develop their own child's resilience. Then I got stuck, and I got stuck with that word, <clears throat> because when you talk to very young children about it, they would go, what? Or even when you talk to adults about it, when you talk to adults about the word resilience, they might have different perspectives of it, and different, different ways of thinking about it. So that's what led me into thinking about, how could resilience be broken down so that it can be used in, really, in lunchtime or in dinner time, mm-hmm. talk over the table with parents, but also within school? And that's when I came across one area of research that I just grabbed hold of and just loved it. I used it, fell in love with it. I'm still using it today. So this is um, one way that you can break resilience down, <clears throat> particularly within education. So you can have a look at resilience, and if you say, "Have you got a resilient child?" So. Um, you might think of a child in your class who you find either comes to you as a, as a teacher quite often or falls out with their friends quite often. You can think of them in these respects, so not just asking if they're resilient or not, but you can say, so how, is their, how are their peer relationships? I'm going to say four things now. So first of all, what's their peer relationships like? Are they good at creating peer relationships and keeping peer relationships? Or even if they've moved schools, which often happens with our young children, are they good at making friends quickly? So first one is peer relationships within resilience. If they're able to do that, that builds their resilience. <clears throat> Second of all is their in- independence. So if they're able to be independent for their age, if they're able to be independent and also relate to their peers and develop their peers, they're able to develop their resilience, they're able to be resilient. So they, can not, they don't just rely on other people, they can do things themselves. Next, of all, next one is problem solving. So again, this area of research was broken down into four areas. Peer relations, independence, the third one is problem solving. So this is not within the realm of mathematics, but it's the, almost the daily life problem solving. Some people would also say the, the emotional intelligence part, part of this, but that's your problem solving. And then the last one, which I've kept to the end because I absolutely love it, and this discussion with all children, but particularly the younger children, is really interesting, and they have some quite strong views on it, and that's optimism. So how optimistic are the children that you have and is, is the children that you have? So it's not just falling over in the playground, scuffing your knee and thinking, I've got to go and get that ice pack. There's other children who've just got it built within them where they fall down, scuff their knee, or they get pushed by a friend or they fail in an assessment. And they have this something inside them that is we now can call it resilience or other things that just thinks, do you know, I'll be OK or I'll try again next time and I'll do better next time. So it's just lovely to see. And it's certainly, absolutely certainly something that needs to be taught and it needs to be grown not just expected just to happen and it's a combination that often these things are called when they are called that they're triangulated which if you if you go to many educational conferences now you probably get a bit tired of it you hear it quite a lot and that just simply means it's just coming from the people around them so it's coming from the school it's coming from home but it's also coming from them so they're able to, they're able to be doing that that self reflection which is just just crucial
1: wow That's- Yeah,
2: so that's just
0: a little snapshot for you. I was going to say, there is a lot to unpick there. Um, One of the things that really sort of struck me, as you know, I'm a big Twitter user. I'm constantly having a look through. But it's that age appropriateness. Um, I see a lot of people talking about resilience and with incredibly unrealistic expectations for young students to be very very resilient and of course we expect a few more ice packs in the earlier years but it's how do we um, almost wean them away from that and how do we support them in that independence I think it's a really interesting topic.
2: I think I think you picked on a word there that that I just adore as well it's such a simple word and that's the word expectations I I absolutely love hearing that Um, I've got within my own family I've got a brother of mine who's got three children he's got an older his oldest um, child is really really tall and his wife my sister-in-law always tells my brother don't expect too much of her because he does because he treats her as she's all he's always treating her like she's a little bit older because of her how tall she is and his wife's been saying hold on a minute don't do that remember she's only 10 she's only 12 she's only 16. Mm -hmm. so that that's really significant so i think having that almost having that word expectations and thinking about for a child what do they expect for themselves What does a parent expect from them and what does a school expect from them? You can really uncover the the kind of the way the child feels about themselves. It's really good.
1: Mm -hmm. I really like how you broke it down really simply into those four key areas, peer relationships, independence, problem solving, optimism. I think that's a really great way of approaching what resilience can be. I also found it really interesting that you highlighted that triangulation aspect um and particularly focusing on the role of the parents so in your experience how did you um engage with the parents um what were some of the interactions you had with them regarding this um how did you approach it um
2: so within the dissertation I, i did it in a variety of ways and some were successful and some weren't the ones that were successful i felt had a target group so that's where I met a specific group of parents who I asked or I rather invited for those who were interested in this kind of area to come forward. And it was amazing the parents that did come forward, probably 80% of them would say that they're having difficulty with their child being what we, they would now call resilient, so particularly their child not being very optimistic. So that was really, really interesting. So having the, the core group there to find out kind of their knowledge and what they needed help for, that was really, really helpful. So no matter where you are in the world and whatever school you're at, if you are looking to develop this, absolutely involve parents in that way. That's, it's absolutely crucial. The other things I did, so two other successes were, one was, was the parent workshops. That was really good. So bringing parents in, um, just simply to build their knowledge, similar to some of the talks I've been giving with you today, but even more so, it's giving them practical ideas about what they can do to build their child's resilience. So specific ideas, such as, really small things actually, such as do you know what, when they, when they um, start a new school or when there's new friends coming along to the school, encourage those play, encourage those friendships by having a play day. So having that extended time to connect with them, because during the school day, they do connect with others, but do you know what, not long, because they're in class, where they're guided, they go out 20 minutes, they come back, it, do, there's not much time for them, so therefore encouraging that longer time for the child to develop, and also for the child to share their interests where they can connect with like-minded children so that was a real success and within that it didn't work at the start because I, I put them always on a Friday morning because that's when I was free and then I found that, you know what all parents aren't free on Friday morning so, I, so what I had to do in term three was I varied the times and there was one that I did kind of late on um, which was really really successful it may have been successful because I offered beer as well not sure. Uh. Might have been that, I'm not sure and then the last one the last one was also involving the the library so if I I I, I say this often to people, if I wasn't in the role that I'm doing now, I would be a librarian. And I seriously would, Um, especially having a three-year-old now and having, kind of reading him books every night and knowing how how rich that makes him by listening to these stories. um, I'd be a digital librarian, hands down. So what I did kind of relatively early within my research was I found, and I leapt onto books there's some amazing books out there that can model resilience. So when they've had a difficulty with a friend, with peer relationships, or if they're not particularly very optimistic, turn to a book. So what I did was I bought, I think it was 70, either 60 or 70 books related to resilience under the four categories that you've just, I've just mentioned. Um, and I made a little library and it was placed in the library, but it was placed in one of the best sections. <clears throat> the library at my previous school has a fish tank. Lee, you'll know this. Yeah, fish tank, and the fish tank in it has Nemo. So Finding Nemo is a pretty resilient little character. Um, (laughs) Underneath that was a bookshelf, so I put it under there. So there's a library. And that's something how I also engaged parents, and then I communicated to parents, come to school, check these books out. So as well as encouraging the kids to, they can come in and take them as well. So that was something, that that was a success. I'll be honest with you, it wasn't a huge success. So to actually get parents in, the idea was good, but to get parents in to then look through our library to choose a book and then take away... Most parents either are working, or when they come in, they want to just take their kid and go. It can get quite late, so it's, it's it's also finding other creative ways around that. But no, those were mm. those are some of the successes from from that with parents.
0: That's superb, superb. Yeah, I think um, you know you talked about the triangulation, and it's almost a quadrangulation in terms of we have many nannies and people who pick up the children who are involved as well. So it's always making sure that message is shared equally among everyone. Um, But one bit I did want to pick up on is you said when you started this um, journey into resilience, there were not many people talking about it. And now suddenly, I don't think you can attend a conference without hearing the word resilience over and over again. Um, you have to have quite a lot of resilience against it. Why? <laughs> why do you think it's become such a huge buzzword in education?
2: That's a really good question. Um, do you know what? That, that's that's so well. That's that's a, such a great question because I actually don't use the word anymore. I don't know if I should say that here. <laughs> I use. I use. I use. Um, peer relations all the time. I use, use optimistic and I use problem solving and independence. I still use those a lot. I don't say the word resilience now hardly ever. I think I've become saturated. I think that's what some schools and even businesses can become when they've got this new wave coming in, whether it be grit, resilience, growth mindset, whatever. It, sometimes it can come to a level where it's just too much. Um, within, the, within the Just drawing back to the research that I did a couple of years ago, I found that there was I don't actually know the origins of it, but I found that there was a lot coming from sport. So I looked at, for example, the way in which there um, they was advertising, but also talk within Olympics, for example. And they talked a lot about resilience in sport and about those students who were resilient. And they actually became better sports people because of it. I mm. then looked at um, lots and lots and lots of websites. And the websites have these kind of forward facing come to us um, almost slogans. And lots of them had had the same things about you're going to be an independent learner. We're a caring community, but then resilience was coming up there as well. So I don't know if that has a link to the the, the particular sports they have in some of the um, some of the schools in America. Um, but then it, it kind of lifts off through the the likes of I've just mentioned it the likes of um, grit. So grit was introduced by Angela Duckworth, which was just huge research. And then you've got the growth mindset by Carol Dweck. And they both, within both of those texts, they also talk about the resilience and building resilience of, of um, students. So there's a lot of overlaps there, including the, the variety of TED Talks that are out there, for example, as well. So it, it really has developed. It's developed and developed and developed. It's almost, it's almost like education also kind of needs that every now and again, whether it be every, yeah. I don't know, every year or every two years, there's something that comes along that is almost feels like a new wave, but it also feels like it's been there forever. And that, in this case, that's, that's what happened with resilience. Uh, so, in talking
1: about resilient children, um, what would you say would be some of the, the key characteristics that would make a child be resilient? I know you talked about those four specific areas and breaking those down, where would we expect to see that within the school day? What could that look like?
2: That's a good question. Um, as you're saying that, I'm thinking of children walking into school, in class, in the playground, in the lunchroom, which is a pretty noisy place in a school, in the um, back in the back in the playground, and in the class, and out again. And it makes me think of for some students, they just sail through it. They just simply sail through it, and there's nothing. They don't have any concerns at all. So they they're kind of their their resilience zone is they don't actually go out of it. they're, they're within their zone. Um, And it makes me think of the word cope. I just absolutely love it. So it's, they're able to cope with the day and they just, they're able to go through it. Whereas a child walking behind them in the same class, in the same hall, in the same playing outside, just has times where where they react and they can't cope. It goes out of that that, that zone that they've got. And that's really, really significant. So where might it happen and where might a child be resilient? Um, So it's being, so it's knowing that you're, it's knowing that you're feeling connected within a community. So community might either be at home and your clubs outside school or within school with your friends and with your teachers as well. That's a significant part of this, really significant part.
1: Um, No, I I think you, you know, you approach that quite well. And I know when I was um, doing some research, preparing myself, I came across a formula um, and it said a formula for having a growth mindset is about efforts plus good strategies plus help from others like you said, you know, particularly for those children who are maybe they're not coping, it's that help from others and maybe that recognition from an adult or another child appear, which is really significant. Um, But just focusing on that second part, the the good strategies, um, what can we do as educators? um, How can we be building this Instead of daily routines.
2: So you um I think what happens in a lot of schools, or what can happen in a lot of schools, there can be a lot of teaching going on, which is kind of what schools are there for. But when you look at the teaching, it's a lot of guiding, a lot of guiding for students, particularly if you've got a curriculum that is quite is quite heavy. So I'm thinking particularly for my current school here, they're going through an exam phase at the moment within our older students, and they they would talk quite openly about not being interrupted by absolutely anything because they've got so much content to get through. Um, so within schools, there's, there's a whole variety of strategies that can happen. Um, I know by going into a school, the, even the school with the best teachers in the world, the teachers often feel like they need to teach, which is kind of makes absolute sense. Yeah. It, would be dumb, it would be dumb not to, but really it's thinking about how the students learn. So it's enabling the students to have that time within the class, not necessarily to be guided. So knowing that they will need some time within the class to struggle. There's also their wave of research out that talks about productive struggle, but actually planning that into your, into your lessons, making that something not, not, not that is just happens by chance, but planning it in. So encouraging that there's times where their children go and struggle and then picking out whether it be those students who have reacted well to it or the students who haven't reacted well to it, or even modeling it yourself about how you then get over those hurdles of when you found things difficult. So it's making that a lot, more, a lot more explicit. It's even going down to the actual seconds of when you didn't cope, if you just rewind that clock just a moment, what happened then? So in terms of strategies that you can do in the classroom, it's, it's creating moments where this children can struggle. I think that's really significant, really, really significant. So it may be that their, their optimism may drop, for example, or they're having difficulty with problem solving, or they're, do you know what, it relies on their independence, but they don't know the answer so they have to find it out so instead oh. of relying on somebody else they're doing it themselves mm-hmm. um, i think creating scenarios like that would be would be i think incredibly beneficial incredibly beneficial and that overlaps with the talk that we've just said earlier about parenting as well about making sure that it's you know it's okay for your children to struggle in fact they need to have time to struggle through something as an adult if we are asked a question particularly if it's from our own loved ones do you know what? We want to answer their question. We want to help them. It just automatically clicks into our head. Whereas what it should be clicking in our head is, well, can they answer it first? Are they asking us because they don't know it? Are they asking us because they want our attention? Or is there another reason for it? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's embedding that, that element of struggle in there as well. So it then, it then builds that. So they don't rely on that answer that comes quickly. Which I know I'm actually finding now in, a, my, in another wave of my life, having a three-year-old, really difficult. Whereas I'm giving advice to parents at school saying, your younger children, you need to let them struggle. You you also need to make sure that there's time when they are bored. So please don't feel like you need to entertain them the whole time. And what am I doing with my son? Kind of the complete opposite in some (laughs) ways. And also developing independence. For us, when we're leaving the house in the morning and there's five minutes to go and we're expecting him to put on his shoes by himself. Well, do you know what? It doesn't always work that way in a family. Sometimes we need to put that Velcro on because we need to get out of the house so it's also another element is when parents are helping at home yes do help do focus on it but just pick the right times for yourself and also be good to yourself through it because if you beat mm. yourself up about this the whole time expecting to do it all the time um it might not make for a happy home life so i've shifted there from, from <laughs> school to home
1: i think well john you got to be practicing what you preach yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely. at home
2: yeah absolutely yeah i think i think next week next week i might get my son just to make the dinner
1: yeah Yeah.
0: (laughs) go back the other way a little bit um but no I, I found that fascinating I wanted to ask you about the explicit teaching of character and resilience I think you've answered it a little bit there but um how do we step back and then how do we use those moments to reflect um one sort of analogy that I keep seeing is the learning pit which has really helped me understand that idea And I was in a conference recently where they had the children self-assess through, are you swimming? Are you um, treading water or are you drowning? And which one, you should never really be treading water. That's too easy. If you're swimming, that's good. You're making some sort of progress. If you're drowning, that's when you need people to come and uh, support you. And I guess, Chris, that was what you were talking about about those strategies
1: and kind of tying that all together yeah and i think that's really important as well because without having that time to reflect there's no way for the students the children to actually internalize that struggle if they're just having struggle for struggle's sake then they're just going to um you know they're going to push that away aren't they they're going to just not enjoy the task however if they're actually getting a benefit from that. So I'm thinking about how they dealt with a certain situation, whether it was a maths problem that they couldn't solve or a poem that they couldn't write or um, something in sports, but actually thinking about how they dealt with that and what they would do next time. That's where they're really getting the value from that. So I think definitely having the time in the school day to reflect is, is crucial, isn't it?
2: I think that's a, that's a great thing to say. And it also, raises the importance of it so it's not just the the language skills the math skills all the other what people call core skills within education that are important it's these skills It's the character education it's developing the ability to the ability to bounce back when you've had a had a knockdown whether it be in the garden whether it be emotionally or whether it be in the classroom it's significantly significantly important really is and it's a catalyst for everything else that you do and also the kind of character that you are it's yeah, it's incredibly, incredibly important. Now, as you're talking, Chris, it also just makes me think of um, not just strategies that we use in the classroom and uh, not just a reflection. A reflection is such a brilliant thing to say. So it's kind of going back over what, um, what you've done and thinking whether it was the right thing to do or not. Um, so reflecting is so important. What you brought up before about reflecting I thought was superb um, and having strategy in class to build this with children is, is it is important. But what it also makes me think of is um, another area of research is developing students' habits. So making this become a habit for them and almost having tools that they've got to be able to use when they come across situations that whereby they're not necessarily or they haven't shown resilience before. That I found talking to students incredibly helpful. An ex- example of that is when the students come, come up to me saying they've fallen out with a friend quite seriously in the playground because of how they've talked to them. So what I'd like to do with them is actually just rewind the clock literally by the second say, okay, not just what happened, but what happened a few seconds before they said that to you. And they talk it through, and then they said about what this person said or did to them, or rather didn't do, and then I say to them, Well, what did you do next? So they said, Well, I, I just ran away. And that's mm-hmm. their that's their kind of their their go-to, or that's their thing they're going to do. That's their that's their almost their automated um response. Whereas we need to develop within the children, within lots of children, and again, bear in mind that some children don't need this. Some children have had from day one, where they're able to be showing all of this, they have their strong peer relationship, optimism, and everything else. But a a proportion of students need to be able to have these tools to know how to respond to a certain situation. So in other words, have kind of a bank of sometimes phrases to be able to use in their minds um, to respond. So if they do have a negative comment for somebody in the playground, um, are they going to Golf into a corner and feel sad? Are they going to go to the teacher? Are they going to keep it in their head and mull over it in the night and maybe text somebody or go into WhatsApp in that evening mm-hmm. and make it become even bigger, even worse? Or at that moment, are they going to respond to it? So have they been taught to either stand up for themselves, which is a good thing, to either, for some children, I've seen them use this so well, some children have used humour. So I saw one child, I think it was a year, was it year eight, year eight or nine, where the child was talking about their dress because it was a dress up day for Halloween. And they talked about their dress being their grandma's dress. And then I heard them respond and I thought it was brilliant. Saying, yeah, actually this is my grandma's dress. I've got three more to use later on in the year. And I thought it was brilliant, <laughs> absolutely brilliant. And the other child actually ended up from that face that was quite, um, you know, quite harsh actually, the child who said it, turning to actually a bit of a laughter. So I thought that was actually, that's a child who is confidence within themselves. Now, that could actually be another podcast for you about what is confidence within a child. That develops the resilience as well, being able to be happy with who you are and stand up for yourself. But a significant part of that for me is actually having a bank of even a bank of phrases or responses that you have in your mind that you don't just use a few times, but that become a habit. So that needs to be schools doing it. But then, do you know what? Schools move on to another piece of learning later on. So therefore, it needs to be parents doing it as well. And if they're doing it simultaneously, So if the school is teaching explicitly, and if the school tells the home, do you know what, during this phase, we're focusing on optimism, we're focusing on peer relations. And if they're just touching on that as well, then you've suddenly got it seeping in. You've suddenly got that retrieval practice where they're able to, if they've learned something, well, they're able to go back to it again and again. And it's able to sink in and hopefully become a habit. And it's actually a really nice character to have. It's a really nice character trait. If you're able to stand up for yourself and you're sure of yourself, that's quite a nice person to be around, you know? really
0: fun to be around. especially yeah. if they can do it with humor and uh always <laughs> helps i agree all right so john one sort of idea or a uh, thing that's been bumping around for a little while is the role of the adult and do you feel that messages from adults unintentionally create mindsets that are undermining resilience can a lot of that good work that's happening in schools and in the classroom become undermined and start to unravel within a child.
2: I think I think they can. I think, I think the danger of um, it's like anything really, but the danger of not being consistent consistent mm. means that the message that's trying to be shared or trying to be understood by children can either get lost or misunderstood. And you can take that from any realm, any realm, but particularly with resilience, I completely agree. Yeah, completely agree. So if, if there's um, a school that's saying that you need to develop your problem-solving within your, within your friends, there's lots of schools that have on the board you need to ask yourself, ask a your friend before you go up to um, ask your teacher specific questions. So it's the idea of using the resources around you. Mm. Whereas when they go home, if there's a question like that, the parent might say, well, actually, you can Google it or you can go and ask, or I can tell you the answer. Um, mm. So yes, yeah, so it's, it's, and what I think about that, it, it's, it could potentially be linked to, linked to time and to the time that is needed for that. So when a child needs to solve a problem or needs something, they mm. need it. Um, I'm not sure if the students nowadays or children nowadays need it more instantaneously. I'm sure there'll be some research that will come out soon that will say that. I'm sure lots of research mm. out there right now that's saying that, particularly with the onset of our devices that we have from such a young age where they're, mm. they're stimulated so often um, yes. that maybe, maybe that's an element of it as well. I know that there's lots of parents that use their own devices in terms of the te- attention that they pay their children. It seems to be, mm. I'm only using the word seems, but it seems to be less than what I remember when I first started teaching 20 years ago. And maybe that has an impact on it. Yeah, they, they're, quite, they're quite difficult things mm-hmm. to, to reflect upon. Really quite difficult things to reflect upon.
1: Yeah. It'd be interesting to see if there is any correlation with you know, the um, ubiquity of mobile devices and technology and Resilience. There's another dissertation for you. There you go. <laughs> I'll
2: wait for that. I'll be the PhD when it's coming. PhD.
1: <laughs> and one of the when I was doing research, for this, one of the um, the ideas that I came across was actually um, that praising children for either their achievements or their hard work that can also have um, the opposite effect as to what was desired. So actually. Um, praising a child for doing well, that can actually end up with the child um developing less of a growth mindset and more of a, a fixed mindset because they they suddenly become um you know they internalize this and that they oh well I'm I'm good at this I don't need to try as much. Um and so you know that's obviously one thing that we as teachers can take into account, isn't it? Um how we interact and how we give praise um, and perhaps focusing more on the the process rather than the ability of the child.
2: Oh, I think that's so well said. That's really well said. It's it's kind of unpicking how the children is receiving your feedback. So it's not just mm-hmm. I've given the feedback. It's how it's being received. I think that's significant for resilience, but it's also significant for so many areas within education. I think that's mm-hmm. that's absolutely true. So so true. And it's also something for. Not just parents, actually, but for parents and for educators, just to be just to be aware of. It's not just the way that praise means the child gets better or you're giving praise in order to raise their Mm self-esteem. You may have different effects. So It's not just the feedback you give, but it's making sure you follow up with that as well. Yeah, that's a really good point.
0: Fantastic. I think That's a great point for us to sort of wrap up this conversation here and just say, John, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's been really, really great chatting with you. Um, just a, a last couple of quick questions. Where would you recommend people to go to learn more about resilience?
2: Oof, well, where would I recommend it for them to go? Um, the, the platform that I use for education is Twitter. You've mentioned it earlier. Twitter yeah. is phenomenal. And when you get linking with somebody who is, um, who is connected to students' well-being, As well as student character, you then find out who they follow, and then you're into whole realm of people who can Mm -hmm. help. So, for example, I've got um, on my Twitter, I've got goodness me, two Twitter accounts: one for my school and one which I've actually called Resilient Underscore (laughs) Kids. I now, I'll be honest with you, I now really regret naming that, (laughs) particularly after a dissertation full of the word resilience. However, um, it had that had that has led me to, and that was a significant part which I've not mentioned. Of the the research that took place in the latter part of my master's was drawing research from Twitter. So that was really, really, really helpful. Um, There's, where else would I go? There's Penn University, P E N N University in America, that they've done a lot of research within developing resilience within schools um, that I found particularly helpful. That was really, really good. Um, Going over to, we've mentioned them, it's not necessarily resilience, but there's a huge overlap, and that's the two. educationalists that have produced some amazing quality texts and that's grit by Angela Duckworth which you've probably heard before and the growth mindset by Carol Dweck it's something that's if you step into any school pretty much around the world um you'll see that somebody has kind of part of that research which is really really good
0: really good yeah and I'll just uh I'll chuck in Joe Bowler as well with mathematical mindsets which kind of was triggered by
1: Carol Dweck's work so, as another fantastic resilient resource, amazing. So, John, you mentioned you've got two Twitter accounts. You've got resilient underscore kids, and yeah. where can people also find you? And then
2: also for my school, it's learning at Thames T E M S. There's all one word, learning at Thames. And that's really documenting the the kind of journey that my school's just starting with um, within the. Or I'm starting with within my school for for what's happening within the school and around the school. then the resilient resilient underscore kids is kind of everything else.
1: Wonderful. Well, a highly recommended follow. Um, Always sharing quality content on there. John, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
2: That's great. Thanks, Chris.
1: Yeah, really. It's been a pleasure, mate. Thank you very much. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much to John for joining us for that amazing conversation. Um, we could have probably been there all night, I think, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were
0: almost on the verge of doing so, yeah. yeah
1: make an evening of
0: it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, an incredibly, incredibly knowledgeable guy, but um, having the luck to have known him personally as well, it's such a wonderful yeah,
1: guy. just John's enthusiasm for everything education <laughs> just rubs <laughs> off on you and... Um, yeah so knowledgeable on the subject yeah what yeah. were some of your takeaways
0: I mean the four parts of um, resilience that he mentioned I think were a really nice way of breaking that down so it didn't just become um, resilience is about falling over and not getting too upset about it or making a mistake and trying again yeah to actually break down those little parts of resilience I thought yeah Was very very interesting yeah I
1: think maybe, if you look at them sort of on their own, you not necessarily connect them with resilience, Mm. but as a group, it really makes sense that, you know, they all work together towards this idea of resilience. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that was definitely one of my biggest takeaways. And also this idea of expectations as well. Mm. I know you highlighted that during the conversation, but um, that really stuck out to me.
0: Oh, fantastic. Um, Yeah.
1: and I, I love the fact that he sort of called out the ice packs um, <laughs> and we were, we were sharing after the conversation that um, I was at my son's school last night and um, one of his, um, one of the kids in his class pointed out the, the medical room and said, oh, well, that's where you can go and get an ice pack and an ice pack makes everything better.
0: <laughs> oh, it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I mean, um, there's always the ice pack and band-aid fiends and oh, those who sometimes they just need that bit of time out and that Absolutely. little bit. So for me it's somewhere between the strategies of knowing it but how can, we, how can we help and support students to not need those breaks quite as much and not need an ice pack to make it all better. Certainly.
1: <laughs> I think a lot of the conversation also focused on the role of the parents as well. Mm. There's, um, there's definitely a lot of focus on that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think um, I like that term, the triangulation, and I think what we've been trying to do with seesaw, um, and what lots of schools are doing in terms of digital portfolios, of trying to open up that conversation between student, parent, and teacher. I know we have a three-way conference at our school, Mm. and other places do as well. Student-led conferences, just trying to get the perspective of that whole child. Absolutely,
1: make sure everyone's involved and aware. Absolutely, and there's also time to reflect as we said yeah wonderful um, so yeah thank you so much to listening to this episode and if you've enjoyed it we'd love for you to share some feedback on twitter you can reach us on the hashtag open door pod, or why not leave a review on apple podcasts or your favourite podcast supplier um, so we will be back very shortly with another episode we've got some amazing guests lined up Uh, In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, I'm cgalleyedu, Lee, you are... Mr. Blowers, B-L-O-W-E-R-S. Wonderful. Okay, we'll be back very soon with another episode of Open Door.